hey, sleepy readers. <laughs> yeah. What lies is it? <laughs> that, um, do not thank us for our new intro, Hey Sleepy Readers. That was devised by Lexi Anderson and Cassidy, Lexi Nicole Anderson and Cassidy Unity Smith. I'm Liza. And I'm Marissa. And you're listening to Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. sleeping and so much reading his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind hi everyone so we talked about it at the end of last week but september 15th to october 15th is hispanic heritage month so for this episode of the podcast we wanted to highlight two latin american and or Spanish-speaking authors, um, and also encourage you to read some Latin American authors this month and potentially buy your book from a Latinx-owned bookstore. Um, I think we posted those resources on our Twitter. Um, if they're if you're looking to find a Latinx-owned bookstore near you, or if you're looking for books by Latin American authors other than the ones we're going to highlight today. Those are on our Twitter at LSMR podcast. Um, But if you're looking for a recommendation from us this week, I read The Inheritance of Orquídea Divina by Zoraida Cordova. um, And she is a Ecuadorian American author. And I read Earth Eater by Dolores Reyes. Let the reviewing commence. All right. Um, so as I said, I read The Inheritance of Orchidia Divina by Zoraida Cordova. And I have had this book for some time. I picked it as my August book of the month. And it was early release. But it did just come out for anybody, not just those with book of the month subscriptions. So it's brand new. You can now officially buy your hardcover copy of The Inheritance of Orchidia Divina. And I think after I talk about it, you are going to want to go out and buy it. I had a really, really great time reading this book this week, and I'm excited to talk about it. Just to start off with a bit of a summary before I get into my ranking of it. This book follows the progeny of an Ecuadorian woman named Orquídea Divina, who had quite an interesting life um, and is known for her miracles or her magic. The story focused primarily on three cousins, her grandchildren, but the inciting incident is that all of her family is invited to her home in a town in the middle of nowhere, America, called Four Rivers to retrieve their inheritance. When they arrive, however, they find that she is transforming and leaving this earth, at least in the bodily form that she has. And that's all I will kind of say about that. That's not a spoiler, but I think you should be surprised when you get to the part where she is passing on. Um, But the the passing of Arcadia also unravels a secret. And seven years later, the family is being slowly killed off one by one, mysteriously. And the cousins and their children, who also are magic in similar ways 
to how Arcadia was magic. They're seeing their inheritance truly come to light while this devious figure from Arcadia's past is hunting them down. So while that's happening, they're hunting down more secrets. They travel back to Ecuador to sort of uncover her past. And this book is about the strangeness of this world, familial trauma, family history, and magic. And it's really great. So I will get into readability first. I gave this book an 8.5 for readability. This book is very easy to read. And when I say that, I don't mean that the writing is simple by any means. I mean that the book like wraps you up and pushes you along. It's not impossible to put down, uh, which I think is sometimes a good thing. Because I find that sometimes when a book is playing on my mind too much, and if it's like too bingeable, it actually sort of draws energy out of you, if that makes any sense. And sometimes that feels good, but sometimes it doesn't. And I feel like sometimes you just need a book that is like easy to read, that you want to keep reading. And if that makes any kind of sense at all, kind of to get a little bit more into the readability of this. This book was like sheer fun to read. And it was the kind of book you will think about when you're not reading it and you'll want to go back to. Um, But like I said, it's not the kind that's like playing on your mind too much that's physically drawing like your life force out. And also when I say fun, I don't necessarily mean that it's all happy. I don't mean it's a cozy read because there's a lot of heavy things happening in this book. But all that being said, it is something that you will enjoy reading big time. So there's that on that. For form and stylization, I gave this book an eight. The form in this book is interesting, and it's also funny that I keep reading books like this. So now, half of the books I have talked about so far on the podcast are set up like this, where it flips back and forth between present and the past, or at least it flips back and forth between two different perspectives. So I had the Dogtown book, I had After Dark, and I have this. So this book switches back and forth between Orcadia Davina's perspective and from her family's perspective. It's not only showing you Orcadia's past and present, but her family's. It gives you pieces of her family's past and present as well. And I think this works really well. The only reason I guess I gave it an eight instead of like an 8.5, but still, but still the reason why I gave it an eight and not any lower was because there were certain points where I was more interested in Arcadia's past and certain instances where I was more interested in the front story, but it's not one-sided. You know how sometimes you'll read a book from two perspectives and you're like, no, 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 I really like this one perspective better. And sometimes you'll read a book where you really like both perspectives. I did like both perspectives, just not always at the same time. Like there would be chunks of the book where I'd be like, okay, I'm really in the front story. I'm excited to learn more about Arcadia's past, but I'm really in the front story right now. And then it would flip like a few chapters later and I'd be like, okay, the front story is like fine. It's all good, but I want to go back to the past. Give me a chapter that goes back to the past. So it was balanced in a way, but like I said, the only reason I wouldn't give it any higher, I guess, is because I did have that flip back and forth instead of just being like, I love every minute of this. And I did really like, you know, I did like all of it, but that was kind of interesting because I guess I had never experienced that before. I had mostly, even when I was talking about, I'm thinking back to like Dogtown. Um, and I had said like, oh yeah, I really liked the true crime portions better than the history portions. Even though I like the history portions, I way favored the true crime. Um, And then after dark, I sort of talked about how I really liked both. 
this was like, I liked both, but not at the same time. <laughs> um, so that's what Cordova is doing with the form. In terms of stylization, I thought the language in this book was stunning. She wasn't doing anything absolutely insane with language, but she would interlace into the story. There would be these really striking lines that were so beautiful and that kind of hit you in the chest and gave you goosebumps. There was one point where she described somebody's open mouth as like a, as a pomegranate cut in half. And there were these really, really stunning pieces of language. And I love that. And and sometimes I love that even more than lyrical books that are hitting you line after line after line after line with this stunning language, because then it does sometimes become a little bit more about the language than the story, which is fine in some occasions. But I do really like when an author has the ability to give you this really enthralling story and then just like smack you in the face with a piece of stunning language it hits you harder it like it means more almost when there's just one sentence that stands out it makes it more striking in when these sort of profound bits of language are scattered throughout so that's how i felt about the form shelf worthiness i gave this book a 7.5 i never quite know what to do with the shelf worthy section because will i read this again maybe it's one of those things where i'm like i don't know you know what I mean? But I will be keeping it. <laughs> and if you look at our scale, it will say like the four slash five is you'll be fine borrowing it, but you could buy. I think you should just buy this book. Maybe there's an audiobook you could get too, uh, but however you like to read, I think this is a book you should have. And so if we're talking about shelf worthiness, that's why I gave it a 7.5. I think you would want to go out and buy this book sooner rather than later and read it. So that's that on that. And then now we get into the sort of meat of it, the plot, um, which I gave an eight. I really enjoyed the plot of this book. And it's interesting because I talked about this a little bit just now when I was talking about form, but I don't even know if this book fit the natural story arc, you know, that we like talk about in school so much. That's like, there's the hero's journey arc, which I'm not a fan. I mean, I'm a fan <laughs> of the hero's journey arc, but we often study this other arc that was like inciting incident. And then you climb up and then there's the climax where you learn something and then it goes back down. And this book was not doing that. I don't quite know what shape the story made if you had to draw it out on a line. Um, but it was separated into multiple parts. And it does take a minute to get to the inciting incident that I mentioned earlier um, to arrive at all these things that sort of happen at Orcadia's estate um, when they go to collect their inheritance. I would say like that was the inciting, inciting incident, but I think it was like a hundred pages maybe into the book or almost. So there's that, but then it zooms in and out, if that makes any sense. Instead of being like, here's the inciting incident, da 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 and now here's the climax and now it's over. It would be like zoom in and out between like I think maybe too, because it was diving into the past so often, there would be these moments 
that were giving you background. And then there would be moments that were driving the plot and they were kind of happening at the same time. But then there were moments that were like really tense. So those were zoomed in, but then there were moments where it wasn't quite as tense. And so those were zoomed out. And so it's, kind of, I don't know what this story would look like, like maybe more like a wave. And there was a lot also, a lot packed into the last 60 or so pages which I always find really interesting. And I kind of like to, like, I don't know how you feel about this, Marissa, but like, or anybody listening to this, do you like when a book doesn't give you the end, quote unquote, until the end? Or do you like when a book gives you an ending and then kind of lets you sit with it for like 20 or more pages or whatever? For me, it really depends on the book and the subject matter. Yeah. For instance, if if this is a uh, a trilogy or a series yeah. and you just give me the end and that's it, I'm going to be upset. I just sat with these characters for three whole books and now we're best friends and now I it just ends. Sure. But if it's like a horror book or something, I do kind of like a faster ending because it creeps me out more. Yeah. It, it doesn't it doesn't give me enough time to mentally process it. And so my brain freaks out. Sure. So I, it really just depends on the book for me. I would say yeah. for a book like that, I might like the, the fast ending. I think it worked well. So yeah, I think I feel the same as you feel. And it was just, it was an interesting experience because there was like 15 pages of the book yet. And I was still like, wait, something else. There's something we don't know. How is she going to do this? in these last pages and then she did it and it was great and it was fine and you were learning things that you were like wait how did I not how was I dealing with this without knowing this for the past 250 or whatever pages of this book but it worked really well and I've had other books that you said like I think horror often works well like that um I had a really fun book that I read that was also witchy called the lace reader where the last 20 pages I was like whoa, it just got crazy. And now the book's over. Um, And this does give you a minute to kind of sit. It gives you like four pages to sit with the 315 pages you just read. But yeah, I think sometimes, like you said, unless it's a trilogy or something, I like that better when they're like, and here's how things ended up. But the other thing I really want to get into with plot, which I think will kind of bring us into a piece of the larger conversation when it comes to what Latin American literature has done for literature is the magic in this book. I would like to note that I love, love, love the magic in this book. I love it. (laughs) Like people, um, when this book came out, um, when I, the reason I bought it Um, is people compared it to Alice Hoffman, who writes Practical Magic, and Isabella Allende, who writes House of Spirits, um, another Latinx author. And that's all true. I can totally see why people say that. And I'm glad they said that because it caused me to buy it. But Cordova also creates her own strange magic um, that is strange and familiar and off-putting and beautiful all at the same time. I don't know if I've said this before on the podcast, but I've definitely said it before is that like, I love magic books, but I, especially witches and this book is, I mean, they call, they refer to Orchidia as a witch in the beginning and a few times throughout the book. 
so yeah, specifically in terms of witches, my favorite kind of magic is a magic that is either totally strange or that is very close to real witchcraft. So like, for example, in Alice Hoffman, in Practical Magic, they have to do like actual like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Practical Magic, but when they have to like banish the dead boyfriend, uh, they have they make like a little coven and like they do this spell that although we can't do magic in real life that you would see a coven of witches doing to banish someone. It just happens to be a literal exorcism type thing rather than a metaphorical banishing like it would be in the real world. So I like that kind of magic. I don't, I love Sabrina the Teenage Witch and I love Charmed, but like when I'm reading a book or even watching a movie about witches, I do like the kind of magic that's in this book slash practical magic a bit better than pointing at something and it turning into like Sabrina would just point at stuff and it would turn into something else. And that's fun. Um, but yeah, that so that's just to give you a little bit of context about the kind of magic I like. But this magic, too, that Cordova created was something I had never quite seen before. There is a lot of nature imagery, um, bugs, flowers, trees. Uh, there's ghosts. There's sea monsters slash talking animal, minor gods, celestial beings. And it's just very strange and so cool. That brings me into my final point about plot and will come up again. Um, a little bit later, is that I think when I was saying what this book was, at least when I was saying it to you, but maybe I even said it in last week's episode, is that I refer to it as fantasy, but I do not think it is fantasy. I think it is magical realism. And there is a difference. And it is so magical realism, like to its core, a great example, I think, of magical realism. Um, it has that flavor to it. Like, I can't quite describe why. For those of you who know me, you know magical realism is my absolute favorite genre. I love it more than anything else on this earth. And there's like a flavor <laughs> to magical realism that fantasy does not, not to bash fantasy by any means. We love fantasy in this house as well. But I don't know. I just, I love when you are in the real world, unmistakably in the real world but then there are just these bizarre things that have found their way into it. And my favorite thing about magical realism is that you do not question it. You never question it because no matter how shocking things are, writers who are good at magical realism, like Cordova, always make it make complete sense. Like you can be shocked by what you're reading, but you're like, no, totally. I get it. I think that's why I like magical realism so much too, because I love the willful suspension of disbelief. I, I, I used to, another tiny tangent here. I used to hate when people in a class would be like, but how does this work? Like, why does this person have this magic? And I'd be like, I don't fucking know. They just have it. <laughs> it's magical realism. Look it up. So <laughs> I think we all need to willfully suspend our disbelief just a little bit more in life and you'll have a better time. So that's that on plot. And before I get into talking about magical realism a little bit more, which will also tie into Marissa's book and Marissa's discussion, I have my last sort of rating scale thing and that is characterization. And I gave this book a nine for characterization, which I think is the highest 
I have given a book so far on the podcast for this section. And that's because I think the characters are the stars of the show in this book. I think we've had some discussions around what happens when the place is the most important part of the story. We've had discussions about what happens when the content and the plot and the storytelling outweigh everything else. Um, But we haven't had too much time to talk about what happens when the characters are the driving force of it all. And this book is a perfect example of that. These characters are so vivid. There are many characters and she doesn't waste any of them. Um, which I think can happen sometimes when there is an ensemble cast. You can feel like, okay, there's these one or two characters that are very three-dimensional, and then there's these others that are just names and like one characteristic. You're given one thing about them, and you're like, okay, that's all. But she gives everybody these really vivid personalities that even if they only pop up in the book a few times, you're like, yeah, that person is real. They're a real person. Um, they're real to me while I'm reading this book. Um, And so she was really talented at that. And you truly, truly care about the three main characters and their lives and their families. Um, So like I said earlier, it's three cousins, Marimar, Tati, Ray, and then Tati's daughter later, who's named Rhiannon. And you truly care about all of them. And I also think it's very telling when you read a book and you have a favorite character, because that doesn't always happen, almost especially in adult fiction. I'm not sure if anybody else has ever experienced this, but when I was a teen and I used to read a lot of YA, you would get so freaking attached to one character. And you'd you, like Marissa just mentioned this and you'd be like, that's my best friend. That character is my best friend. And in adult fiction, specifically literary fiction, I have to say that doesn't really happen as much. I don't know what happens <laughs> when adult people are writing. There's, I don't, or maybe it's being an adult that makes you less there's got to be something behind it. And maybe it's just me. It's being an adult that makes you just not like people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like I said, I think it's very telling when you have a favorite character because it makes it, it makes it clear that this person is so talented at re- characterization that you feel like, oh, I would be friends with this person in real life. Um, so I do have a favorite character even though I genuinely felt connected to all of them. And if anyone cares to know, my favorite character is Ray, Raimondo. Um, so if you read the book, let us know if you felt the same or if you had a different favorite character. But yeah, I was really struck by the characterization in this book. And the other really cool thing about it is she gives you a family tree. Like there's a drawing of a family tree at the beginning of the book instead of, um, you know how sometimes fantasy books will have like a map. And so then you can go back and look at the map and understand what's happening. She gives you a family tree. And it makes everything truly feel more connected and it's really beautiful and it makes everything feel more real. So that's how I feel about characterization. And I also feel like when we're doing our rating scale, I don't usually touch on the Wong Baker faces pain rating because I haven't had a book yet where it was more than like a two. But FYI, I would put this book at like a six, which is hurts even more. Um, Six out of 10, maybe even a little higher. There's a part in this book where I was so sad and it was also gnarly. 
and I, it hurt me. So I think it's sometimes fun when that happens. So that is the inheritance of Arcadia Divina. Marissa and I both wanted to talk about our authors a little bit more for this month, for Hispanic Heritage Month, and also kind of like a little bit of a discussion around Latinx literature. So Zoreta Cordova is Ecuadorian American. English is her second language, but these books are not translated. I think she moved to the United States when she was six years old. And I think Mar I say that because Marissa's book is a translation, um, which adds like another kind of discussion piece to this. But Cordova primarily wrote YA. And I might be wrong, but I believe this is her first adult fiction story, or at least her first magical realism adult fiction story. I, I think she might have written like um, some romance stuff, which is also very fun. But she has a Star Wars story, YA, which is cool. I have always wanted to, I don't know if any other writers are listening to the podcast and are like, who gets to write the Star Wars books and there'll be all sorts of books that are based on movies and tv shows and you're like who the heck gets to write those because i want to so yeah real people are writing those <laughs> she wrote one of those um but also one of her books series that stood out to me when i was researching her was her why series that i think also put her on the map um which is the brooklyn brujas series uh which i now really want to read um, now that I'm familiar with her writing. And it is described as a Latinx version of Charmed and of course set in Brooklyn. So right off the bat, I'm like, yes, I would like to see it. And she said that she wanted to write about identity and family and magic. So that kind of connects to some of the themes in the inheritance of Orchida Divina, um, while also being inclusive of people of color which is amazing. And without taking from pre-existing mythologies, ultimately creating a fictional pantheon of gods inspired by many different Latin American cultures, which I think is so cool. And I saw, I, I saw this when I was looking her up. This is before I said, this is interesting. I think she's really creating her own type of magic here in this book. And that kind of just makes me think that that is something she likes to do all of the time in all of her books. Um, and also in like her little author's bio, she says uh, when she's not working, she's roaming the world in search of magical stories, which I really like. And the, the other thing that stuck with me is she said when she was trying to write this book, it was because this image of like a magical older woman sitting in the middle of a valley in a house that appeared of nowhere, out of nowhere was the image that got stuck in her head. And then the book was formed. Um, and I just love when people kind of describe how they came to write a whole novel like that. Like this, sometimes it is really one image that gets stuck in your head that you literally can't get rid of. And you're like, I have to write it. And then that image doesn't even become the most important part of it anymore. But that's how it started. Um, so I really like that. Um, and she also said that on this being her first adult fiction book, that she wrote this book for the person she is now where she wrote Brooklyn Brujas for the person she was when she was a teenager, which I think is a really cool way to look at that. And I also really appreciate that she writes YA and adult fiction, because I think sometimes people will tell you that you can only do one, um, but I think you can do both. And she's a great example. She used language to describe 
this is how you do both. You write one for who you were and one for who you are. And I just thought that was really cool. If you like this book, go read Brooklyn Brujas. I'm going to. And I guess it's also potentially being turned into a movie. Hopefully it'll be good. So that's a little bit of a background on Cordova. And now I want to get into a little short little discussion before we jump into Marissa's review, which is magical realism. And for those who perhaps aren't familiar or those who are, magical realism begins in Latin America. To sort of get into the history a little bit, people will credit this with sort of, from what I understand, it's some kind of mix, the culture hubs that were happening at the time. So like there was like a lot of, I think, surrealism and fabulism happening. This is around like the 1920s and the 1930s. And it's just generally thought that it was originated in Latin America, primarily in Argentina. I've also heard a lot of people um, saying that it begins in Colombia. And I think that has to do with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude. But yeah, when you think about it, all of the most prominent and magical realism stories, authors, are Latin American authors. So a few of the ones that came to mind for me, like I said, was Marquez Allende, who we mentioned already, uh, Borges Bolaño Lolosa, also came to my mind The House Guest by Davila, and uh, Adela's House by Marianne Enriquez. So those are two more women magical realism authors. I kind of want to get into a little bit more because I think Marissa might have like a tidbit on this too, but there's something happening where people are trying to say, no, 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 no. It didn't start in Latin America. And I'm like, I don't know why you're saying that because people are like, it's a global thing. Like everybody's writing, writing magical realism. And I'm like, sure. Yes. Now a lot of people are writing magical realism. There's outstanding magical realism from other countries, Japanese magical realism, African uh, magical realism. And of course, we also have European magical realism with Kafka and what have you. But I think it's weird that there's some sort of conversation happening where people are like trying to whitewash or rather westernize in quotes, magical realism. And I'm like, no, 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 like, just say it. Just why can't you admit that we owe so much to Latin American authors inventing magical realism, Latin American authors who were not afraid to create this bizarre, beautiful genre, like you don't need to have an argument about where it came from you don't need to people aren't saying that only people latinx people can write magical realism we're just saying no 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 (laughs) it started in latin america and so there's that um and also just to get into the definitions of magical realism people will change it but there's a few kind of key things that seem to go along with it One Mexican critic said, if you can explain it, then it is not magical realism. I really like that definition of it. Um, I've also heard people say, and this is always the way that I go with it, that it's something that is set in the real world, something that is familiar, but there is at least one thing that is strange and unexplainable. Another term from the prologue of the novel, The Kingdom of This World, by Alejo Carpentier is the marvelous real. 
is a way to describe it, which I think is gorgeous. I do also want to bounce to Marissa, who read a weirder description of magical realism, which we do not like. Um, but before I get there, it's all just to say, for Hispanic Heritage Month, we truly have to celebrate Latin American literature across genres. But I think we specifically kind of noticed this pattern of the marvelous real in Latin American literature and sort of what that has done for the world and also what Latin American and Hispanic communities have done to uplift this movement of surrealism and fabulism or whatever you want to call it is just really cool. And how other people kind of derived inspiration from that. I do think, you know, when I was looking into it, her name popped up. It's Toni Morrison. Like, Toni Morrison is doing magical realism when she does Beloved. Murakami is obviously doing magical realism. People brought up Frida Kahlo. So it's just this really gorgeous literary style that is now so prominent and that's just, you know, one way to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month in Latinx literature is to celebrate and acknowledge magical realism. And Marissa is going to talk a little bit more about that, too. But what what was the definition that y- you saw? The definition starts off OK and then it takes a strange turn. I'm going to skip around, but. The first sentence says magical realism, chiefly Latin American narrative strategy that is characterized by the matter of fact inclusion of fantastical or mythical elements into seemingly realistic fiction, mm-hmm. which I'm like, yes, OK, yeah. <laughs> then you skip down uh, a sentence and it says some scholars have posited that magical realism is a natural outcome of postcolonial writing, which must make sense of at least two separate realities. The reality of the conquerors as well as that of the conquered. I just don't know what that person is trying. Okay, so it is postmodern, which is technically postcolonial, but it almost seems like they're like, and then the white man came, and suddenly, like, I'm like, what? <laughs> right. And it also seems like, which must make sense of at least two separate realities, the reality of the conquerors as well as that of the conquered. So are they saying that two different kinds of magical realism came from this? Because if that's what they're saying, I would rather read magical realism from the, in quotes, conquered than I would the conquerors. What the hell does it, like, what what do they have to say? I don't know what they're trying to say. It's very bizarre because that's also just not even true. No. Like, not all magical realism. What? I'm very confused. It's it's a confusing definition. Um, If anyone is curious to look at this for themselves, it's on Britannica.com. Just look up magical realism. Also, that made me, that made me think that I really want to take a class on Latin American magical realism. I would love to take a class on magical realism as a whole, because like I said, there's really interesting magical realism from other countries as well. And there is now American magical realism, but I would very much like to take a class specifically focused on Latin American magical realism. So if anybody, if anybody has a class that we can, what's it called? When you go to college class, but you don't go to the college. Audit. Oh, yeah. Right? I don't know. We don't know. Well, I would like to go. (laughs) Sometimes I think about the classes we had at Pratt, and I'm like, why did we have that and not other things? Yeah. 
I also just think this is another rant that we can like cut later, but what a disservice to the youth of America to keep giving us books by whites. People are always like the best literature is from England. And I'm like, it's not actually like, how come we didn't read a hundred years of solitude in, I didn't, I certainly did not read it in high school. We had one year of world quote, world literature. And I think the only thing we read was The Kite Runner, which is a beautiful book, but also like how I had, I had like classic, it was, I don't even know what freshman year was. And then it was American and then it was British lit. And then it was, and then it was world lit, but it was still mostly white people. And in college too, like what a disservice to the education system to be like, and this is how white people write. And this is how the Western world writes. And it's the best. And I'm like, it literally just is no, it is not. <laughs> okay. When I think of my high school English experience, the first two years, my teachers were nuns. Yeah. And they both just followed a textbook. So I'm like, whatever, I will excuse you guys. You guys are old and you probably do not want to teach anymore. So please just give me whatever, which I mean, like, you do get some good things. Like, I mean, I got To Kill a Mockingbird, which like I read in eighth grade, whatever. I got Night, which is a Holocaust novel. You know, there were some good ones thrown in, but there were also, oh, I did get Maya Angelou. I know why the cage bird sings. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. And then I got into AP Lit and you would think I would be reading better things, but I think my poor teacher was trying to appeal to the class which was composed of, I went to an all-girls high school and we went to a Catholic school, a private school. So if you think about it that way, mostly white, mostly wealthy and all girls. So, I mean, we read Hamlet. We read Speak by Laurie Hall Sanderson. uh, We read Jane Eyre. So like not a bad selection, but very white. Sure, yeah. Especially for... AP lit you would think right um I also think in college I feel like there's no excuse for this in college because at this point if you are majoring in writing you should be pretty versed in classics and I I put air bunnies around that so when people are still giving me these things okay no 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 shade to Maggie Nelson yeah. But when I have to read Bluettes three <laughs> times in three different classes. Yeah. What's happening there? You're so right. It's very strange. Hey, everyone, decolonize your bookshelves. If you have to do it yourself because your teachers are not decolonizing your bookshelves, do it. You know what? If you need to read the classics, you need to read the classics. Everyone wants to go back and read a classic at one point. Cool, cool, cool. I highly respect that. The professors that we had at Pratt should have been learned enough to not give us what I mostly had. Right. And you know what? I'm looking at you. Beep. I know that you could have gave me more in my in my freaking what was it? I had word used to start with him and I had genre bending with him. And to be fair, I was introduced to Bolaño in his class. I loved our world lit class and I loved Democratic Vistas, which was our American lit class and Shakespeare. And I also took a class about satire. Whoa, Neri was there. 
a person of color or a woman for world lit he he was dead wrong but like i also took democratic thesis and like for that class i'm like okay i kind of get it of course there wasn't that much it was from civil war era right we read the narrative life of frederick Douglass, emily dickinson we did read a lot of short stories in all of our classes and it's I don't want to say that I wish that our studio professors would have done better because for the most part, they were pretty all right. There's a few that I'm like, why? Yeah. Our professors were pretty renowned. Like they, they, we had some really good professors who are actually an active part of the writing world. Yeah. And for me to have, again, bluettes. Um, I also did recall that... I never got a chance to take it, but our thesis professor taught a Latin American lit class that I never got to take. And I'm unsure if it um, focused on, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think it focused on magical realism by any means. I don't know if it, but it, it very well could have had magical realism books. So that's a cool thing. I, I never got a chance. Forum was pretty good. Yeah. Forum was good. Yeah. And Aja Monet is like, yeah, I think she's one of the best contemporary poets that we have totally and we got claudia rankine coming too right long story short pratt teachers do better fuck up and it is a practice the fiction world is so saturated with straight white cis stories it is a practice honestly to decolonize your bookshelf it's also just hard i think not only because there's just so many but also I never think about the author when I go for the book. I always think about the story. I'm so bad with names. Our thesis professor kind of like got mad at me for this. I remember that. It's hard. The name is less important to me. It's more about the story. And now that I'm more engaged in the writing world, it's becoming more of an important thing to me. Yeah. Pretty much, if I don't like your writing, I'm... I'm not going to remember your name. And that's simply what I don't care if you're the most popular writer. I will not remember your name. Oops. Am I next? You're next. All right. If anyone hears a little bell or any meows, it's my cat. Uh, as said, I read Earth Eater by Dolores Reyes. So Earth Eater is set in a slum in Argentina, and the main character is able to eat dirt and the earth, and it shows her visions or maybe dreams, I'm not quite sure, of those who are connected to it. This main character, who remains nameless throughout the whole book, uses the earth to help solve missing persons cases. It's really cool, but I would not consider it to be like a mystery, even though that's what I was kind of thinking when I first went into it. I was like, okay, this is going to be kind of like a cool magical realism mystery. I would say it's more magical realism coming of age. So let's get into it. For readability, I gave it a nine. The book is really short. It's less than 200 pages. The chapters can be as short as a page and never really longer than five pages, I would say. So it's, again, we've seen this before, but it's easy to just keep reading and reading. The plot is also something that will really keep you interested, although maybe not for the reasons you think. And I'll get to that some more. For form and stylization, I gave this an eight. The writing's pretty clean. I saw one small mistake, but, you know, writers are people, whatever. 
there's nothing particularly unique about the form and there's nothing wrong with that at all. The reason why I scored it so high with all that being said is because Dolores has such beautiful prose and it's not something that I would call lyrical or poetic, but kind of towards what Eliza was also saying, there's something about her descriptions that they're just so hard hitting and um, they're just so good. They're, they're simply just so good. There's there's no good way to say it. For shelf worthy, I said five to six. It's definitely worth a read. It's a perfect September fall book when you're preparing for spooky month and it's like not quite spooky month, but you're kind of in the spooky mood. It has actual witchy vibes, which is interesting that Eliza kind of said the same thing, but it had witchy vibes in the sense that I could see this actually happening. There's simply um, a girl who has almost another sense. Like, I don't want to say a sixth sense because, ugh. but yeah. Not only is it witchy, but there's also a sense of desperation, which I will get into, I think, in the plot section. But it, it really made me want to go out into the yard and eat dirt and see if it could tell me something. Because how many people out there have ate dirt? Eliza, what? Are you saying you've never eaten dirt when you were like a kid? I mean, when I was a kid, maybe, but not oh. like to a point that I remember it. Do you, do you? Yeah, no, that's right. I'm sure I ate dirt. Um, Lindsay, if you're listening, we know you swallowed a worm once on purpose. I don't even know if someone dared Lindsay to eat it. I think she offered to and people were like, OK, and then she ate it. <laughs> Lindsay, I'm so sorry, but that's pick me energy. Lindsay's a bug kid. Lindsay, oh my god no yeah Lindsay was like the kind of kid that like picks up bugs she'd do it to this day oh Lindsay, little freak we love her but i feel like i've never ate dirt at a time when i can remember eating dirt so therefore i wanted to go and eat dirt and see if i could like see anything so i think that this book is great for fall I wouldn't say that you necessarily have to read this book more than once, but I would say you should buy it and definitely have water with you while you're reading it. If you're, I'm a very physical sensory reader where as I'm reading things, I feel like they are actually happening to me. So while she's eating the dirt, I like can feel that. I don't know how to explain it, but I can feel it. And it made my mouth so dry. I've, I have never drank that much water in my life. I'm dead serious with you. For plot, I gave this an eight. I think that it's a super original storyline, a super original idea. It is pretty sad and devastating and desperate, but I don't think that you should avoid a book just because you can get some negative feelings while reading it, especially when the book is reading to bring your attention to an important and relevant issue. Um, Feeling emotions from a book is in a controlled way, and therefore it's my belief that it is cathartic. I would say nothing was really predictable in this book. Again, probably because it was so original. And I did have some questions as the end came, but nothing like plot holes, just simply questions that you would usually have with a coming-of-age novel. For characterization, I gave this an 8.5. I was disappointed when I got to the end, but it wasn't because the writing wasn't good or didn't give me something. It wasn't about the writing at all. It was more just that I wanted to look after the characters more, 
which just tells me that I had become connected to them. If there was anything I really had to say about this, the age of the main character was pretty... I didn't know what it was. It's never said. Her name's never said. Her age is never said, which is done purposefully. Um, But there was a time jump during the story, which left me confused. Clearly, towards the end of the novel, the main character was a lot older than she was in the beginning. But I wasn't really sure what that was. So those are pretty much all of my thoughts on that. So to get into the author a little bit, this is uh, Dolores... Reyes's first book and it's really promising for her as a writer and I do hope she writes more I'm just going to read the little author bio on it because you can't really find much on her probably because this is her first novel she was born in Buenos Aires in 1978 she is a teacher feminist activist and the mother of seven children she studied classical literature at the University of Buenos Aires and Earth Eater is her first novel So the act of reading, to me, is more than just going from page one of the story to the end. I think that you have to read the epigraph, the dedication, the author's note. You have to look at the cover. These are all things that, in my opinion, go into reading. So with that being said, I'm going to read the dedication really quick. In memory of Melina Romero and Arceli Ramos for the victims of femicide and its survivors. So if that didn't tell you what this book is about, not every missing person in this book is female, but the point still stands that a lot of the missing people that the main character is experiencing through the earth are women and are victims of femicide. The kids in this book have been let down by every authority figure in their lives And by the end of it, they're over it. And I think that is a reflection of how a lot of women authors are feeling. Or I could just even say a lot of authors in general are feeling about the issues that they write about, whether they're writing fiction or nonfiction. I don't know if her name is Julia or Julia. I'm going to guess Julia. So Julia Sanchez is the translator for this book. And her translator note is really good. I also wanted to read a little piece from that that connects to what I was just talking about. Much like its heroine, Earth Eater has also risen out of a particular moment and as a response to a particular neglect. Femicides remain widespread throughout Latin America, and women have banded together in protest. Earth Eater is dedicated to two victims of femicide from the barrio where Dolores Reyes works as an activist and teacher. Women authors continue to be overlooked on a national scale and have joined forces to demand they be seen. We may have been aware of these things for a long time, but they are finally being addressed. Even language is being righteously shaken and molded to make room for those it has long excluded. So I think this being Dolores's first book and it being so devastatingly impactful like this is wonderful. I was really confused by the word femicide. I can't say that it was something that I'd never heard before, but it was something that I'd never thought about too deeply. I looked up the word to see if I could find an exact definition of it, and I really couldn't. 
It's very up in the air, especially in the U.S. as to what a femicide is. And also me and Liza were kind of talking about this before we started recording, but femicide just isn't something in the United States. I mean, it is. It happens, but it's not a word that we use. And in Latin America, it feels very prevalent. I could find data on the number of femicides in Argentina over a given period of time, over three years, over in a month time, etc. But in the United States, you don't see that. I mean, this is still a recent case and we don't want to make assumptions, but with the recent disappearance and possible death of Gabby Petito, why is it just homicide and why is it not femicide? Think of all your favorite true crime podcasts or novels. When it is a woman being killed, why do we not call that a femicide? Why is this like something that's glanced over in the U.S.? Perhaps it's simply because we don't know exactly what classifies as a femicide. With the word hate crime, it's not just murder. With a femicide, the is side at the end would make you think murder, as in homicide, suicide, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but what, like, what words do we have for women that are crimes against women? Just crimes against women? Yeah, violence against women. And there is the Violence Against Women Act, which, by the way, might still need to be renewed. Um, I think it may have expired. Um, but yeah, it's an issue of when a woman is, intimate partner violence, when a woman is murdered by her husband, boyfriend, father. Yeah, why isn't that? That is a femicide. You're being killed because you are a woman. It's different than a hit and run or whatever. What about even like sexual assaults against women? Right. You think there should be some kind of like word that could, I don't want to say like lump it all together because you don't want to lump it all together, but we should have a word so that we could talk about these things together. Do you know what I mean? And and to collect the data like they do in Latin America, because, you know, I know also there's data on the high rate of femicides in Mexico. And yeah, I'm sure there is data. I know there is, like I said, on the missing and murdered indigenous women's crisis. Yeah. Where's the data for that? Where's the data for femicides in the United States? And again, the book that I read does take place in Argentina, and this is an ongoing conversation and a very relevant conversation in Latin America. The important thing that this book is doing is raising awareness. And how can we raise awareness for this thing in our country when it's not even talked about in our country? So the reason why I started talking about the United States is because that's where we live me and Eliza. And because I don't hear about it. So I wanted to raise awareness about that and make it more of an ongoing conversation for us here. And that's all I got to say about that. Everyone go celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month by buying a book. Do it. Do it now. Right now. You only have until October 15th. No, you should always support Latinx authors all year. Yes. But you only have until October 15th to observe Hispanic Heritage Month. You only have until October 15th to uh, buy a book, take a picture of it, and post a cute, oh, celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month by reading this book post. I'm going to go buy Earth Eater, I think. 
Oh, I think you would love it. Also, I am so excited to post a picture of this cover. It's because gorgeous. It is so beautiful. Also, the cover is created by Justin Gaffrey. Gaffrey. So shout out to him. It's beautiful. Would you like to announce next week, my love? Next week, we're doing something a little different. Me and Liza are both going to read the same book. Um, And we're both going to read Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Because Something Wicked This Way Comes. Boogie. I'm excited. We love. Also, very excited. And I've never read this book. That's all we have for you today. Thank you for listening. And keep reading. Keep keep. Hey, (laughs) keep reading. Keep on reading. We'll see you next week. Do you have any more thoughts? I have lots of thoughts, but none I should share. Okay. (laughs) Marissa's just like thinking about God knows what.